Previously on the Tony Kornheiser Show. It's not a license plate. I don't know who it is. I don't know what's going on. And I could solve it in 20 seconds if I got a live body. Yeah. But nobody wants to have live bodies because they don't want to pay employees. And that's why everything is done transactionally off computers. But that doesn't do me any good. No. Your computer can't talk to me. That's a war of attrition. They just they expect you to be worn down by me. Not gonna be. <laughs> I'm not I'm old. I got nothing else but anger. That's all I got. The Tony Kornheiser show is on now. Happy to say we have a full complement of people here today, Michael and Nigel and me. Happy to have everybody with us. I don't know how I got into this Elvis deal the other day. I think it was because I was talking about letters that I was looking through um, preparatory to throwing out all my old mail. And I talked about all the mean letters I got about an Elvis Presley review that I'd written at Newsday when I was a rock critic for an hour and a half. Because we also talked about Elvis with N, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. So what been... a great voice Elvis really had. Yes. <laughs> you know, when Elvis does the Battle Hymn of the Republic and, you know, just makes you shiver. Yeah. how great he was. Greg Stevenson in Mobile, Alabama sent me this. Dear Mr. Tony, found the clipping of your Newsday review of Elvis at the Nassau Coliseum in 1975. It's a long time ago, kids. Via a search on newspapers.com. It's attacked for your perusal. As you noted, it's pretty brutal, but contains some outstanding turns of phrase. You refer to his show as the semi-annual photo session scarf drop and garage sale and said his opening act was straight out of the synthetic soul Vegas handbook, but also acknowledged the greasy electricity of the young Elvis that was by that time gone for good. Makes it all the more lamentable that those fingers no longer type. I just looked at this. I'm going to read a little bit. It's when I worked as a rock critic, as I said, in part two on Newsday. And I said, this is early on in the thing. Um, Elvis did bits and pieces from 24 different songs Saturday night, running through most of them as if his pants were on fire. On some of his greatest songs, like Love Me Tender, All Shook Up, Teddy Bear, Don't Be Cruel, and Hound Dog, Elvis hardly bothered to sing at all, preferring to talk and giggle away most of the words and walk around the stage giving the sold-out crowd a better view to focus their cameras on. I guess Elvis figured that everybody knew the words anyway, so why waste his energy? (laughs) Only twice during his performance on the gospel number, How Great Thou Art, and on the semi-religious, You'll Never Walk Alone, did he let his voice all the way out, reaching back for the power and emotion that established him as the king of rock and roll almost 20 years ago. Both times he was magnificent, so magnificent that at once you realized how much he had cheated you with everything that had come before. Elvis knows where he was. He was home. Everywhere he goes is home. People love him, and Saturday night's crowd loved him as much as any. They screamed and shrieked when he came on the stage as his backup band played 2001. They called to him as he paraded around stage, bejeweled in glittering rhinestones, looking like a heavyweight wrestling champion with his giant belt buckle and regal strut. Much has been written lately about how Elvis has turned to fat over the past few years, but Elvis wasn't fat Saturday. He was overweight and over 39 like many in the audience, and he moved more like a panda than a gazelle. At times, he even looked foolish when he started shaking it, but he wasn't fat. I just wanted to put that to rest. (laughs) I'll read two more paragraphs. There are two full generations of kids, those born in the late 50s and the 60s, who are growing up wondering what this fuss over Elvis is all about. All they see are his Tinseltown movies on television. All they hear is sanitized singles on radio. All they know is what their parents tell them. They'll never really feel the greasy electricity of his shakes or understand what was so special about a southern white boy singing black music through his hips. 
That's pretty good. That's a pretty good phrase. How about that, English teacher? That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's good to know we still have an Elvis, even if the Elvis have, we have has to be this one. Elvis was dead within six months. Yeah. Within six months of that. There's a great story about Elvis's death and, and the effect on newspapers. Bob Green, who was a great columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times, fabulous columnist, wrote a whole bunch of collections, really worth reading. Bob Green wrote a story about, sort of similar to mine, about how Elvis was tanking it now. Wasn't very good. It was a front-page column. Elvis died the day that was going to run. They called Bob Green, and they said, maybe we shouldn't, this is a story I've heard, maybe we shouldn't run this. And Bob Green said, run it. And they ran it. And he got brutal hate mail. <laughs> I'm sure. Brutal. Because people loved Elvis. I mean, they just loved Elvis. Anyway, that wasn't a bad review. I, I wasn't bad as a rock critic. No, it's interesting. A lot of that holds up even right now as you're trying to think, can a new generation sort of watch Elvis on the big screen when it's been so many years and you're so far away from that primal experience? The one great thing in Elvis's comeback career, of course, was that special he did on television. Yes. Um, where he sang great. He was dressed all in black, black leather. And he sang great, and you went, I get it. I totally get it. And then after that, just yeah. more dopey movies right, and stuff like that. Did you ever write reviews for, like, Sir Douglas and the Quintets? Can we get somebody to get the archives for that? I don't think I wrote, I don't think I saw them. The Sir Douglas Quintet. Doug oh. Som, was that his name? S-A-H-M, I believe. <laughs> yes, I think it was. She's about a mover. The Sir Douglas Quintet. Not a bad song. She's about <laughs> yes. a mover. Um, so I get home. I went to uh, the beach. For a few days, Chan and I, we played golf for three days, drove out, played golf, drove home. And yesterday morning, after having slept, and I didn't sleep at all last night. I had cramps in my legs, and I was up all night. But yesterday morning, Sunday morning, I go out to the side of my house to see the one thing that mattered to me most. My daylilies. It's the only flowers I really like. My daylilies are on the side of the house. They're orange. They're wonderful. They bloom, I don't know, for about a month. There were no daylilies. A deer had eaten the daylilies. They were all chopped off at the same height. They were all eaten by a deer. I asked the people in my house, did they see the deer? No. No response. They hadn't seen the deer or heard the deer. You don't hear deer a lot. Right. They don't have a high-pitched cry, and they're pretty silent the way they walk. They're like stealth bombers. They're usually doing this under the cover of darkness. Yes. Today, when I went out to walk the dog about 6 o'clock, there was a deer at the end of my street. One deer. I thought deers went in packs, at least two. One deer. One solo deer sauntering around. Belly Obviously, full. Yeah, yeah looking, looking for, for daylilies at somebody else's house. <laughs> sauntering around. I'm not a, I don't believe in killing deer, hunting deer. I'm not that guy. You know, let the deer live. I'm fine with that. But sauntering around. <laughs> And just eating people's flowers. Yeah, don't rub your face in it. Yeah, you've got to be. You know, somebody's got to say, hey, buddy, why don't you go back into Rock Creek Park? Why don't you enjoy the snacks that nature has provided you in Rock Creek Park? Don't do this here. Just alone, just sauntering, like not a care in the world. No natural end, nothing. Right, no nothing. fear. That's been the biggest surprise of our house to the point our neighbors have, have approached us saying, have you seen the Deer that are going through your backyard? No, we haven't. But have you tried uh, getting some lantanas? I think the oils in the lantana leaves will also help uh, keep the deer away. I didn't know that. Yeah. 
I mean, so thank God the deer don't climb steps. And I don't believe they climb steps because I still have my tomato plants. Oh, if they could climb steps. Then it's over. Yes. They... Then you can't have food. Right. You have to buy. That, that would be a plot by Safeway and Giant <laughs> to enable you to only go to the supermarket. Yes. That's all. All right. Um, and nobody wants to hear about my golf. I wanted to uh, mention a couple of things, though. I talk about this a lot, that very often golf tournaments are won and equally often golf tournaments are lost. Two golf tournaments were lost yesterday, the men's tournament and the women's LPGA championship. They were lost. They were not won because the people that won the golf tournaments did not have great scores, right? Shoffley did not have a great, it was okay. It was fine. You know, he was, but, but Sathit Thigala, he yeah. lost it. He's up one going into 18, hits the driver into the sand. We saw this last week in the open with Fitzpatrick, but Fitzpatrick got out and made a great par. Thigala didn't get out on it. It looked like me on the first one, hit it right into the face of the bunker and came back down and his feet had to chop out on the next one. Hit a great shot, and if he makes the putt, and he just... Lips out on the left side, curling around to the right side. If he makes the putt, there's going to be a playoff. Shoffley had a, a great approach shot. Shoffley played 18 after Thigala, but Thigala lost that. He got a double, right, Michael? That's a loss. Yeah, that's a loss. He's an attractive young player. You want to see him win. He lost. Yeah, that'd be, that would be uh, great for the messaging that they're putting out there, but that is nothing like what happened in Bethesda, Maryland at Congressional, the newly designed Congressional which, Country Club. Which Michael Wilbon went to. He had written me a note that it was garbage and it wasn't nearly as interesting as Olympia Fields. Then he went because he'd just seen it on TV. Then he went and he said, this place is great. It's fantastic. It's great. I said, you, he says, yeah, forget my note. Forget it. It's great. So you have to go back. I, this, uh, I, I was circling this. I was hoping to be able to go out for a couple of days. Uh, I was not able to. And then I, young I, child. I, watch it, I watch it on TV, and all I can focus on is the pool deck. Right. And immediately, Where we, the first day after the huge <laughs> storm, I text Gary, Nigel, and Chris going, do you think Tony would still demand the portable AC? Air conditioning. Yes, 100%. <laughs> so <laughs> this girl, Inji Chung? Inji Chung, yes. Who has won a couple of majors before, but not in a few years. Uh, leads is killing it on the first she's day. She's pulling a Rory McIlroy. She's killing it on We're the second day. About to have to redesign day. the course again. On the third day, she's plus. She's over par on the third day. And Lexi Thompson, who has won one major, but not another one in a very long time five, six years? Eight years. Eight years. Lexi Thompson, wonderful player. Not a great putter, as we came to find out. Remember out. Olympic? Lexi Thompson catches her, basically. And they go out. They're in the last group yesterday. And Lexi Thompson and Chung has, she's plus four on the front, plus four. And Lexi Thompson's up by two. Throughout the back nine, Lexi Thompson is ahead. And it could be three. She misses a five-footer for, for that, that tricky downhill putt on nine yeah. after a great approach. Yes. She misses a bunch of putts. She bogeys a par five, which somebody with her length should not do, right? I mean, she's uh, th That's the 16th hole that they shortened to 495, yes. She's a long hitter. She bogeys that. On 17, she's above the hole three and a half feet on the pot. Yeah. Three and a half. She doesn't hit the hole. She goes by on the right side. Oof. Bogeys the hole. So now she's down one. And on the 18th hole, she has a makeable birdie putt. She's below the hole 
10, 12 feet, she doesn't get it to the hole. She should, it goes to the right. You can live with it going to the right, but you got you to gotta get it to the hole. So Wilbon, Wilbon and I are talking when this is happening. Wilbon's very sad because he likes her. He knows her and he likes her. And he says she choked. And, and, and there's, there's just no other way to put it. You have to give her the respect of being an athlete. You have to give her that respect and treat her like an athlete. And an athlete, in this case, choked. That tournament was lost and not won. And this has haunted her for years. Yeah, and if you hear Morgan Pressel, I think, did a great job talking about these problems with Lexi's putter and the hours that she's put in. She has a green in, the, in her backyard. And if you looked at uh, the par three, I think this was 13 on the back nine. She marks about a two-footer, labors over it. It this goes is... in, but you start, that's, that's where what it goes in. What was the one in. she missed? 14 is the one where she misses and it's... doesn't even touch the hole, and it looks like she barely gets the putter back. And it's, uh, it is a credit to her mid-iron game that she gives herself these uh these opportunities and to her the the strength of character that she stays and signs for autographs after the tournament penalizes her for slow play with that heartbreaking loss uh yeah this hap- this seems to happen more often than not with her but again she she comes right back out and puts herself in that position she did not talk to the media yesterday i hate that okay my feeling always is don't just be there when it's good times. You've got to be there in bad times as well. There are some athletes who only talk to the media when they're doing bad. John McEnroe plopped himself on a couch <laughs> and had a psychiatric, psychiatric intervention whenever he lost. He's the most interesting athlete in the world when he lost. But in this case, I would say, oh, you know, you got to, yeah. I mean, she, she knows she lost, the t- right, Michael? She yeah. lost the tournament. I'm not sure there's anything else she can add. I'd, I'd rather she yeah. sit there for the young fan signing than to, yeah. than to just say and have yeah. that, you know, the reminder. But Yeah. So we had one, I will just say this, we had out at the beach on Friday, it was me and Chan and Alan and Gary, and we just had a wonderful time. We had a wonderful time. I'll tell you what happened. Um, Gary doesn't like to play unless there's competition of some sort, a match of some sort. It's not doesn't have to be for money. Jack, Gary just likes competition, lives for competition. Oh, Gary's competitive. Yeah. So at the beginning of the round, I say, all right, I want Gary to play well, so so we'll have a match. It'll be me and Gary against Allen and Chan. Allen's the best player. And I said, we'll give Chan four aside, and we'll give me and Gary two aside. And Allen says, okay. And we're playing a $10 match. $10 match. And when the match is closed out, when somebody wins a $10, you have the opportunity to play a $5 match on the last X amount of holes. So the most you can win or lose is 15. That's the most. We are four up with four to play. I'm, I played pretty well. Now, I gagged like a dog at the end. I finished 7-7. I finished double-triple. Five over in the last two holes. Five over. Just terrible. Any reminders from the golf cart to return to the course? Just, yeah, a couple of those where I had to go backwards. <laughs> but on the last four holes, the one of them, um, so 15, 16, 17, 18. 15 is a par three. 16 is a par four, dog leg left. 17 is a par five. And 18, closing hole is a lot a of out of four. bounds to the right. I pumped two out. I had a floating mulligan. Everybody <laughs> had a floating mulligan. I pumped the first one out of bounds on the right on 18. Took my mulligan, did the same damn thing. <laughs> Said to Gary, play hard, partner. <laughs> play hard. Chan parred 17, the par five. is his best hole of the day. But Allen parred it too. Allen made putts. 
on 15, 16, 17, and on 18 from 12 feet up the hill to the right to stave off elimination. Allen by himself, basically. I mean, Chan did very well, but Allen carried the freight here. So it was even at the end, which is fine. I'm glad it's even. There's no money that changes hands. That makes me happy. But Allen was great. He putted great, Michael. He, he, putted always, like, he always putts great. He putted he like the Allen Bubis, who was, you know, who had to win the holes, and he did. He won the holes. And I left Gary in the lurch. How would you describe <laughs> Gary's face when you pumped the second one out of bounds? It's like I didn't look. out. Let me just say, he was at my left. I did not look. I just said, play hard, partner. <laughs> That's all I had. I ruined it. Yeah, it was me. Anyway, uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Chuck Culpepper. That's the plan. He's in Wimbledon. It's a five-hour time difference, so we think we're not waking him up. I'm Tony Kornheiser. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is the Tony Kornheiser Show. This is Jessica Mitchell. We've played her stuff before, right? Yes. Her dad sends it in. Yes. Her dad, Michael, sends it in. It's amazing. As you well know, Jessica, like many of her musical colleagues, has been hit hard the past couple of years as a result of the pandemic. A concert tour canceled. Several festivals canceled. However, she's getting back to it. The creative juices are starting to drip, drip. Show's being arranged in the next couple of months. It's time. A couple of tracks for the podcast. How good is she? It's amazing. <laughs> How good is she? I mean, this is legit. Come on. <laughs> How good is she? Wow. Jessica Mitchell. This is one of these things and plays in Chuck Culpepper. We'll play her again later in the show. Chuck is in Wimbledon. And and let's start with, you've written a bunch of stories already, but let's start with the Serena story. Serena is playing, she's in as a wild card because she's ranked 8,041 in the world because she hasn't played in a while and that's how rankings work. Is she seeded? Do they realize she's Serena Williams and if she says she can play, she's better than most? I think what they realize is that something could happen in terms of maybe winning a round and then winning another and then gathering steam and then it's something something rare and wonderful and all of the above. Yeah. But um, her ranking of 1204, she did win an Australian Open once for a ranking of 81. So um, 81, 1204, you know, pretty close <laughs> yeah. to each other, I guess. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think... I think there are the expectations, given that it's Serena Williams, I would say are, are very uh, limited. What do you expect from Serena Williams? What would stun you? How far would she go to stun you? Or would a first round out stun you? A first round out would not stun me at all. Um, and a visit to the second week, I think, would, I don't know, stun, but it would certainly impress. And it would be just another, you know, testament to her know-how and her, her, um, uh, her, she, her knowledge of how to win is, is just way, way up there in the pantheon of all 
athletes. So I think that I think getting to that second week, the fourth round, quarterfinals, whatever, would would start to be a very justifiably loud story. I understand that the U.S. Open is her national championship. But in the way that the Masters is the most important golf tournament, no matter where you grow up, Wimbledon is the most important tennis tournament, no matter where you grow up. She is 40 years old. Is this it for her? Is this the farewell tour for her? And will she even play the U.S. Open if she goes out early? I think, I think all of that hinges on how this goes. And I think that because at near the end of her press conference on Saturday – she was asked about the ending last year and how um, she was playing on center court to 3-3 in the first set, and then she got injured and had to go. So I think she, she sort of said that that, was, that alone was the biggest motivator she had to come back and do this now, that that moment she did not want it to be the ending. So I think if this goes well, we could be talking about the ending, but I think if this doesn't go well, I think she'll try more just because just that's who she is. But I will say, just from years of having sat in these rooms and listened to her, she seemed like a happy, contented person. And she's, it's always been a happy thing to be Serena Williams, at least to some degree. But to me, she seemed just this, this happy and contented person in a way that was, was is nice to see in anyone. And, and was it kind of struck me about her. So do you think that, you know, do you think if she never catches Margaret Court, and it gets increasingly harder as she gets older and older, if she doesn't catch, in her mind she says, if I was healthy, I could have caught her. It's okay. I got enough. I think so. And I think, I think she can always do what a lot of us are going to do, which is to say that in any kind of real way, she, except the numbers, she's caught her already you know, it's 24 to 23. Yeah. But if you go back through those draws of all those Australian Opens, yeah. the court one, some, and then you count up the matches that each has won in, in Grand Slams, you know, in those uh, championships they've had, she's already ahead of her. You know, some of, those, some of those times you had to win like five or six times to win the whole tournament instead of seven. And, um, and of course, we all know about how from numbers one to 100 to 1,000, the, uh, the tours have become rougher than they've ever been. Yeah, yeah, no question about that. All right, we'll switch over to the men's side. Novak Djokovic is playing. He's out there. He's been cleared to play. Uh, your thoughts? I assume he's the favorite, especially with uh, a couple of players from Russia not being allowed to play in this. Is he the favorite, Djokovic, on grass? I, th- I think. Oh, for sure. He's the favorite whether they were here or not. And um, he's number three in the world now, but he's you know, number one here, he's won it three times in a row, but it's a little bit tricky to talk about because it was 2018, 2019, and 2021. They didn't have this in 2020. Mm-hmm. But he's the favorite, and, and the fact that he might not or probably will not be at the U.S. Open because of the United States requiring vaccination of, of non-immigrant, non-residents coming in, uh, that this is his final slam of the year, quite possibly, I think makes him, you know, an overwhelming favorite in a way, because, as much as anyone can be, because he, he's, he did say on Saturday that he's going to put everything into this with the knowledge that it will be his second and last slam of the year. I read your story about Djokovic and this particular thing not being able, he doesn't think, to go to the U.S. Open. And I can't, 
you know, I don't know what his tone was like. It's hard in the printed word to find this. But, Chuck, if I had to be honest, I would say, wow, he is facing this. He doesn't even seem to care. It's like he goes, okay, that's what they're going to do. I'm going to live with it. There didn't appear to me to be resentment or anger, nor was there any concession on his part that maybe I ought to get vaccinated. Am I reading that wrong? Every single syllable of what you just said is exactly as it came off in the room. It's, it's, he's made this peace with it, I think. Yes. And we think about this guy. Yeah, he, he's tw- got 20 slant. He is probably costing himself the all-time slam record with this, but he's willing to do that. And, you know, think of, I don't think anybody's ever lost slam opportunities in more freakish ways as, you know, striking a ball in yep. anger and it happens to strike a lineswoman, which is, you know, people have struck balls like that for years, but this is like incredibly bad luck at the 2020 U.S. Open. And then getting kicked out of Australia after being there for 11 days and not being able to win the slam that actually is his best one. So, yeah, he's with this whole, this whole stance of his, you know, is, is, is a huge factor in the history of the sport. Very strange. So I I agree with that, and I'm I don't think of him I don't think of him as Kyrie Irving. I mean I really don't. I think and I and I'm not talking about his principles. I don't understand his principles, but he's willing to go down this road for at least to me no apparent reason, none, zero, and he's willing to do it. Does he talk about that? Because he doesn't. It doesn't feel like he's crusading for all people. No, I don't feel that at all. You know, he's very much, I think, uh, respectful of of people's decisions in, in this in this matter. And he, yeah, I, I I don't see any kind of crusade going on at all, or, or any kind of like denigration of the of the caliber of vaccines that we see out there. Or, or um, yeah, I just see, you know, the best explanation I've ever heard. I think it was. Our, my colleague and our friend, our dear friend, Liz Clark, that mm-hmm. talked about the precision with which he's treated his body for a long, long time might not allow for this, um, for this possibility at all. And um, I, I, that's the best explanation I've ever heard. Okay. I will move to another subject, and I'm, I'm treading on thin ice here because I don't know if this is true. Twice in my life, I went over to cover Wimbledon, and both times I stayed for the British Open. Are you staying for St. Andrews? I am staying for St. Andrews. Yeah. I feel yeah, that's very the, happy and saying. Yeah. That's the way to go. Good. That gives me a couple of questions. <laughs> Tiger's going to play in that one, right? What do you expect? That's right. Oh, about, I expect maybe the, similar to the Masters, a place he, that was always seen, seen to uh, favor him, that he, he knows so well in his bones, not, maybe not as well as Augusta National, but he won. What two opens? Yep, open championships at, at St Andrews, oh oh and oh five, I think. And so, so I, I see maybe one of those rounds where, like at the Masters, where the idea that he makes the cut um, is seen as a marvel because it sort of is. I agree with that. So I also wonder about this, and I know you're concentrating on the tennis, but you're in England, and the British Open, which is going to be played in Scotland is going to allow everybody who is qualified to play. They are not going to cancel out people who are on the Saudi tour. They're not going to do it. 
uh, just as the U.S. Open did not do it. What is your sense, if you have a sense, of how, because a bunch of Europeans, including Englishmen, have joined the Saudi tour. And you notice I never call it the live tour. Never. I call it the Saudi tour because um, I want to hammer that home a little bit. Uh, what is your sense of how that tour is viewed in England, if you have a sense? I actually believe, from what I've seen from, say, the thing about the Scottish Open, yeah. you know, they, they made that stance they not, not allow players from the Saudi tour. Uh, from the way I heard Andy Murray talk the other day, um, I, I actually have a sense that here there's a little more discontent with, with the Saudi tour than, than there would be in the, in the U.S., where maybe people are a little less, well, there's no question that because of geography and the two oceans and all that, that people in the U.S. are less engaged with mm-hmm. the world than people are here. Mm-hmm. So I believe that here, if I had to kind of rate it from what I've heard so far, um, and just from, you know, regular dinner conversations and things, I would say there's a, a little more discontent with this whole idea than in the U.S. Yeah. I wonder how they're going to be received. I wonder how some of those players will be received. Anyway, have a wonderful time at both events. We will borrow you whenever we can. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you so much, Tony. Chuck Culpepper, boys and girls. Terrific writer. We'll take a break. Richie Justice is going to join us. We're going to talk about baseball when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. One more time, Jessica Mitchell, sent in by her proud dad, Michael Mitchell. Michael, if people want to send in their children's music or their own music, how do they do it? <laughs> send us your music by emailing it to jingles at com. This is a song called Let Go. This is, as her dad said, Jessica showing off her guitar work and her rockier side of things. wonder if she has any scarves that she throws around when she's up there. She's just incredible. Sometimes you're speechless. Sometimes you just say, oh, wow, this is big-time talent. Mm -hmm. Big-time talent. Richard Justice joins us now, and I'm going to throw Richie a curveball. We're going to talk about baseball, but I'm going to appeal to Richie's sense as a graduate of the University of Texas. I'm going to ask about the fact that the University of Texas just signed Archie Manning's grandson and namesake, his son Cooper's son, the number one rated quarterback in this high school class, has committed to Texas. How stunning is that? And what are, what are the Longhorns like you do with that? Happy days are here again. Yeah. We're, we're 90 miles away, Jimbo Fisher is boasting the best recruiting class in the history of the recruiting services. And now Texas has gotten this franchise-changing quarterback. Look, when Mac Brown was at Texas, when Colt McCoy and Vince Young were his quarterbacks, they were seventy-five and ten. Vince was thirty and two and won the national championship. 
Colt got hurt in the national championship game That's against right. Alabama. To me, and you, you guys know this, quarterbacks change everything. They change the swagger in the building. They can mask all kinds of problems in other areas. When you have a great quarterback, remember, Tony, you and I, in a, uh, years ago, we would watch the Dolphins on Monday Night Football. They didn't have a very good team, but they had Dan Marino. That's right. And they they could were win. in every game, and they That's were entertaining right. as hell. So there have been, in the re- these recruiting services, there have been three quarterbacks with 1,000 with perfect ratings. Vince Young, Quinn Ewers, and now Arch, Archie Manning. Quinn Ewers was to be the number one player in this class. He, over an NIL dispute with the Texas high school governing body, he went to Ohio State uh, for his freshman year, got a million dollars in NIL money, but didn't win the job and transferred to Texas. So now they have Ewers, and they have, they're going to have Arch Manning in 2023. And their other guy that uh, they have two other guys. Hudson Card was the number one, the number two quarterback in his class, and a kid from California that's a five star. So, you know, it was a bad, bad season. They were five and seven. They lost the longest losing streak in sixty-five years. They lost to Kansas at home. I think Kansas is first road win in the Big Twelve in like ten years or something. It was a bad, bad year, but. Um, a quarterback can change everything. So while Jimbo is getting all this attention and all, and, and I mean, and the guy has recruited great, but it's a good day for, for uh, it's a good day to be a Longhorn. All get, as, uh, as Sarkeesian, he retweeted Arch Manning's uh, commitment tweet and with his mantra, all gas, no breaks. <laughs> so we'll, we'll yeah, well, uh, that's... The second game of the season, let me say, is against, uh, let me check the schedule, Alabama. So they will get tested <laughs> by fire. We'll find out how good Quinn yours is pretty early. Will, by the time that Arch Manning gets there, <laughs> will they be in the SEC? Will uh, that move be complete? I don't think so. I think, they, I think the Big 12 is going to hold them to the fire and say, you guys want, you, you guys want to leave? Um, give us the money. Give us all the money. So the Big 12 will be this mammoth conference next year with, with BYU and Houston and West Virginia. It, you know, it's, it's a conference geographically that makes no sense, but that's right. the state of playing college football now. I have to say that um, given that Tennessee had Peyton and Mississippi mm-hmm. had Archie and Eli, when I saw he was going to Texas, I just – you know, a, a thousand question marks just came up right before my eyes. I mean, I just didn't know why. Is there some sense of why? Well, yeah, they did the best job of recruiting him. The Texas quarterback coach was in there every time he could go in there. He was in there. They joked that he was turning on the lights in the weight room. It came down, I think it was Georgia, Alabama, and Texas. This kid, his recruiting, you know, he's Cooper's son. And, yeah. uh His recruiting has been a story since he was in the eighth grade that people were following him around. It's interesting. He hasn't taken any – he doesn't have any NIL deals. His uh, first and only Instagram post uh, or tweet, first and only tweet, was about his commitment to Texas. He's low-key. You know, they had their camp last week, and basically Peyton, Eli, Archie, they just said, you know, we just support the kid. It's a different – you know that family. It's a, it's a it's a different game with them, and they have tried to make his life as normal as possible. And so that this is the recruiting is off the off the board now, and hopefully he can have a, a fun high high school senior season. 
but it was met. There hasn't been many good days for Texas football in the last uh, last 12 years, Tony. Finished higher than 19th once. That, that, that spans four head coaches, and that tells you you've pretty much played your way off the national stage. That's right. That's right. Well, it's Florida State, similar circumstance. Right. Florida State and Texas are similar. Um, USC, you know, that's why they went out and they got that guy, Lincoln yeah, Riley. Let me just say that that guy's having a great – Lincoln Riley's that's having right. a great time there. He threw out the first pitch at a Dodger game a month ago, and guess what he's got now that he didn't have in Norman, Oklahoma, and maybe this is why you take the job. He's got hair. He's <laughs> got some hair plugs put in, and it was like – and he was—he's a condescending guy, and the bald uh, sports writers like me in Oklahoma—they were gleeful. Like, what's next, Lincoln? A tummy tuck? You oh, become so Hollywood. Oh, this is beautiful. You—you you always look down your nose at us, and now you're making enough money from USC to afford hair. Congratulations, buddy. Let me get to baseball a little bit. Uh, the yeah. Astros played the Yankees four, I think. I think it was two-two uh, mm-hmm. in the series. Um, the Astros have the second best record in the American League. Nobody knows that. They have in Jordan Alvarez, whose birthday is today, one of the great stars in baseball, and nobody knows that. But the Yankees, the Yankees are like 8,000 over 500. You paid attention to those games. What did you think? Uh, I thought it was as good a four-game series as you can have. And the Astros are in a stretch now where they play nine straight games against the Mets and Yankees. They're four and two. They have a day off in New York today, play the Mets two, and then come home for a weird one-game homestand against the Yankees. You're four and two. You'd be one, two against the Mets, and then split these four at Yankee Stadium. And you would think, hey, you feel pretty good about that. They couldn't feel worse. They blew a three. The, one of the three best bullpens in baseball blew, blew a three-run lead in um, the first game. Came back. Verlander won the second game. They won the no-hitter, a combined no-hitter on Saturday, and then blew another three-run lead yesterday. Yesterday, they had to take, they had to fall on their sword. They had to give the relievers days off. Uh, they just had to. They had their top three back-end relievers couldn't. But they no-hit the Yankees for 16 consecutive innings. The message is um, Aaron Judge is a pretty good player, and uh, mm, yeah. the Yankees are good. I mean, what's, what's happened to the Astros is interesting in the 2020 pandemic playoffs they debuted this whole new generation of pitchers, and that's allowed them to sustain success. Alvarez, I believe, is 25 today. They have, yep. you know, he's their best player. Kyle Tucker is 25. They, what they've done is they're going to make the playoffs for the seventh time in eight years, and they've transitioned. Jose Altuve is the only common thread running through all these teams. Yeah, they're, they're like 10 up in the West. They're, I mean, <laughs> yeah, people don't realize it. They're great. Right, but that makes their record somewhat deceptive. Because there were four, as Dan Shaughnessy would say, tomato cans in the AOS. Okay. But you got to, you know, you, yes, you get 19 against each of them, but you got to play some other people here and there. Um, True. Did you see this kid, O'Neill Cruz, the Pittsburgh kid? Did you see him? Yes. Playing shortstop? Yes. Six, seven short. We're going to talk about two prospects. He's one of them. What did you make of him? Because in that one game that he played, he threw the ball faster across the diamond than anybody had ever done it. 97.5 miles an hour. So I, I immediately thought, if you ask me what I think of this kid, I think somebody on the Pirates is going to say, maybe we have Shohei Otani here. Maybe we can pitch him too. What did you think of him? Well, he's 23 years old, and he's a wild horse. I mean, I, I don't think they know 
what they have in him. He has not been, I, I, you know, it, when you're in a situation that the Pirates are in, you have to bring a guy up like that and let him play. He's only had, yep. Yep. He's only had 28 plate appearances, but he gets you excited. And, you, you, you know, you, there's nobody going to games in Pittsburgh. You've got to give him a reason to go. And a kid like this that you look and go, did I just see that? You know, and, and I mean, well, I, I remember when you know when Vin Scully would, when pros, great prospects would come up, he would like you could tell he was as excited as anybody else after all those years in the game, and I think hopefully that stirs the sport in Pittsburgh because it certainly needs stirring. In one game, he threw it faster than anyone in the majors <laughs> had ever thrown it. He hit it harder than anyone on the Pittsburgh Pirates had hit it all year. Yeah. you know, and he ran. And he's and he's six seven, right? Their well, shortstops aren't six, six seven. Right. He is six seven. He has, as you said, great bat speed. Oh. But he has a few holes in that swing. He's <laughs> he struck out a few times. He hasn't yep. drawn any walks yet. But again, he's twenty three years old. He, presumably he's going to learn the game and he's one of those guys you can get excited about. Uh, apparently, this other kid to get excited about as a college kid is his name Ben Joyce. Do I have that name right? That's right. Yep. How fast does he throw it? On May 1 against Auburn, he threw a pitch 105.5 <laughs> miles an hour. Um, mm. That got mm. him some NIL deals. The, since Radar Gun started tracking, there's only been two pitches faster than that. Araldus Chapman threw one at 105.7 in 2016. And he threw on 105.8, the fastest ever in 2010. That's it. Now, the problem is, in that game against Auburn, he threw 28 fastballs, 103 miles an hour or faster. He's 6'5", 225. But guess what? In MLB Pipeline's latest list of draft prospects, he's number 116. Why? He made 27 appearances this season. He never pitched. He pitched on back-to-back days twice, both to one hitter. But... 53 strikeouts in 32 innings, 14 walks, three hit batsmen, eight wild pitches. He's Nick Nuke Lelouch. He was not the club's. Well, I mean, that, I mean, that's what he is. He was not the club's closer. His high school coach said, um, "I bet he hasn't pitched 100 innings in his life. He missed the two previous years with elbow, shoulder, growth plate issues, and all of that." He's the most intriguing player in the draft. They're going to. I'm sure teams are going to like the Rays and the Yankees are going to use all their TrackMan technology to try to examine his elbow, his his motion, and say, uh, what do we have here? But I think, you know, you mentioned the 105.5 against Auburn. I think that frightens the heck out of teams. Like, they don't know what it means. They don't know if he's got any durability at all. So it's uh, he's the fascinating player. It'll be interesting to see where he goes. 105.5. I mean, yeah. come on. I mean, yeah. like, honestly, I'm, an, I'm old. I understand I'm old. But Nolan Ryan never went 100. No, Nolan that, Ryan know, was me. feared by everybody, and Nolan Ryan went 96 right. or 97 at most, right, Richie? Right. And, and there's a great documentary out now, just released on Friday, called Facing Nolan. And it quotes these guys, and you know Nolan, and you knew yep. Dave, you know Dave Winfield. And mm-hmm. what they talked about was the sound of it. The sizzle, you know, and I don't know, the best day of spring training for ball riders is when the pitchers throw batting practice, and you can stand there in the cage, and you get a, you get a feel, outside the cage, obviously, you get a feel for what it is to face major league pitching, and it's the sound you remember, the sizzle, um, 
at the All-Star Game in 99, Ted Williams' last public appearance, he asked McGuire, do you ever smell, do you ever have the odor of burning wood when you foul a ball back? And uh, McGuire says, all the time. And Ted goes something like, yeah, I tried to tell these a-holes, and they don't listen to me. <laughs> but what it tells you is the, the velocity and the speed at which the game is played and how uh, it is a frightening game, the velocity and everything that's, that, that pitchers are capable of throwing at. But, I mean, he did give up. Ben Joyce did give up hits in all. I mean, even if you don't have a way to break up the timing a little bit, even college hitters can get around on 102. Wow. Richie, thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Richard Justice, boys and girls. Always good. We'll take a break. We have email and jingle when we return. I'm Tony Kornheiser. Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You're listening to The Tony Kornheiser Show. That's Phil Coleman playing some sort of bubble machine. It's just wonderful. <laughs> just wonderful. Nigel, you want to do the Bethesda Bagel ad? Yes, Bethesda Bagels. We love them. You will as well. Just go to BethesdaBagels.com for the location in the D.C. area nearest you. Then pop on in and you'll be thrilled. That will do it for us today. Before we get to the mailbag, let's do this. He said, call the doctor. I think I'm going to crash. The doctor says he's coming, but you got to pay in cash. They went rushing down the highway, messed around and got lost. They didn't care. They were just dying to get off. And it was life in the fast lane. That is a phrase... Popularized by Glenn Fry and the Eagles, but Glenn Fry wrote that song, I believe. I think he was the one who said "Life in the Fast." Life no, remember first. it was the friend, the Count. Oh, okay. They were driving down the highway and he, said it to Glenn. <laughs> Fry. Said it to Glenn Fry. Right. Yeah, and they said that's a song right there. Thanks to our guests today, Chuck Culpepper, Richard Justice. Thanks to today's sponsors, Me Undies, a great read by Michael Solo Stove and X Chair. Remember, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Odyssey. If you get the show through Apple, please leave us a review. Bootsy turned five. Yes, I missed it. it no, was we, we chose to go to the beach. We, uh, we were still, we were <laughs> yes. still dealing with that in our household. I missed it. Uh, but the co- both, at least I took the other grandfather with me. So, <laughs> sure, so we were down two grandparents. <laughs> yeah, right. So uh, I can't be yelled yes. at. Uh, but yes, celebrate with the Bootster TK Bootsy Five. Uh, still works at JohnnyO.com. Pick up some off- uh, offerings for July Fourth. Um, this came in in May, and I never read it. From John Kendall in Tulsa, Oklahoma. This is before the PGA, which was at Southern Hills. The PGA is only two weeks away, and those of us who live in Tulsa cannot be more proud. This will be the eighth major held on the Perry Maxwell masterpiece in our wonderful city. But there is a distinction that Southern Hills has that some may not know about, while others simply do not mention in polite company. In 1981, a businessman by the name of Roger Wheeler was sitting in his Cadillac on the Southern Hills property when the lights went out, as in forever. That's right, Roger Wheeler was rubbed out by a member of the famed Winter Hill Gang and their notorious leader, Whitey Bulger. Yep, that Whitey Bulger. The same Whitey Bulger from the motion picture Black Mass and the Departed. The same Whitey Bulger who was an FBI informant and then disappeared for 17 years until finally being arrested in 2011. And it says Bulger is now serving two life sentences in federal prison. No, he's not, because he's dead. Yes. And he was dead early on. Yeah. 
Yeah, early on. That's wonderful. John Kendall in Tulsa. Mark Feinsand sends us a photo. Says, I just dropped off my oldest son at Camp Westmont for his first summer as a counselor. As I was making my way back home and driving on Route 71, PA Route 171, through Forest City, Pennsylvania, I came upon this bar. DG's reach extends to places we never dreamed of. It's a bar called DG's. <laughs> and it's a bar. Fantastic. It's got a big couple of steins of beer on the sign. Forest City. I've been in Forest City. Do they have the pickled tomatoes? Uh, they probably do. They're pickled eggs. Pickled eggs, that's pickled what Pickled eggs, yeah. yeah. I think I registered for the draft in Forest City. Robert in Kissimmee in Florida. Several of my friends affectionately call me Billy Bob. I swear on a stack that I did not pirate your Easy Pass. <laughs> ben Franco, Baltimore, Maryland. It's me. I've been using your Easy Pass. I'll stop. I'm sorry. Do you mind if I keep using the water at the beach house? Stuff? <laughs> From Ken Sands, not related to Steve in Washington, D.C. I reserve my license plate fascination for the diplomatic plates you see frequently in the DMV. Around Forest Hills, I see a lot of Chinese diplomatic plates, which begin with DCY, followed by three numbers. Spain is D-U-H. There's no Homer Simpson like duh, do, whatever Homer Simpson said. There are 16 countries whose plates start with DQ, but Qatar, the only country name beginning with a Q, is not one of them. That's DFT. Algeria, on the other hand, is DTF. Seven plates start with DG. He's everywhere. <laughs> the codes seem to be chosen at random. One more thing. The three numbers start with 001 and work their way up eventually to 999. Meanwhile, whenever I see an unfamiliar plate while driving, I make my daughter look it up on her smartphone. <laughs> I just want to know who's in the neighborhood. From Blaine in Atlanta, Texas. Does DG have a DG license plate? I'll hang up. We're just more DG questions than I've ever thought of. Um, the Ken Sands one is duplicated. From Jolene Wojcik in Grand Island, Nebraska. Mr. Tony in Nebraska. Our license plates are still made by incarcerated individuals at the Nebraska State Penitentiary. There's a waiting list of offenders applying for this work opportunity, and they have to meet a minimum requirements for the job. Information for life, hopefully not our life, but somebody else's life from Jolene. From, uh, what is, who's this from? Jason Robichaud, correctional officer, says, Yesterday during your podcast, the great minds of the outer rings of D.C. and the bowels of Maryland mused whether license plates were still made by inmates. You're asking about the lettering and also about the letter H. Well, there is a reason for this. You're going to have to call me for the rather nefarious reason. No, it's about spacing. I can tell you that Massachusetts still produces their plates using prison labor. It comes as a surprise to many that the supply chain was not stopped during the pandemic. There is no outsourced labor in the blue state of Massachusetts. Inmates make about three bucks a day cranking out the steel rectangles, gliding the bumpers of the very good kind and law-abiding drivers of the first commonwealth. I am the correctional officer, read 23-year veteran, in charge of a 29-inmate workforce at MCI Cedar Junction, formerly Walpole, that produces all the license plates in the state. So this is Massachusetts. The prison stopped being called MCI Walpole when the locals, embarrassed by the notoriety of one of the nation's most violent prisons, decided to name it like it was the choo-choo train station in Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, <laughs> thus born MCI Cedar Junction. Our most famous inmates were Aaron Hernandez, NFL Patriots fame, transferred to the Max, and, well, you know, Cadillac, Cadillac Frank Salemi, a lovely older gentleman, uh, genteel almost except for the mafia-ordered executions, and both Boston Stranglers. Long story. I'm a loyal listener, and though my girlfriend gets her news from another D.C. source, NPI, I get mine from you. But it seems you have a deficit in your knowledge about all things criminal and license plates. I can tell you criminal stories, also ghost stories, but that is another mail. I'm closing in on retirement. I have to get 
to the average age of any correctional officer, a ripe old age of 56. This is due to poor working conditions, stress, and post-traumatic stress disorder. But before I die, much to the glee of my 16-year-old twins, a son and a daughter, I could answer a couple of questions about license plates. Hit me up. He gives me his number. How great is that? I'll be calling this guy. It's just so great. If you're out on your bike tight, everyone, as always, do wear white. But I still need a bit of milk, full fat. Full fat. Which I've warmed in the micro wave. <laughs>
don't 